The Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, welcome, everyone. And uh, we have uh, very distinguished guests with us here this morning. And I'm going to make a, a few opening remarks, and I'm going to turn it over to the ranking member to make some opening remarks. And then uh, we're uh, just delighted to have uh, both, of, uh, both of you with us here today. So with that, um, for the first time in a generation, the United States is facing a great power competition that threatens to disrupt the world order America created with our allies in the aftermath of World War II. That world order has arguably benefited all, especially those who believe in the principles of democracy, human rights, the rule of law, free trade, and a capitalistic free economy. These cornerstones of liberty and prosperity, however, are once again under assault as we face a global power competition, most notably by a rising China intent on reshaping the world in its own image, and a Russia that wants to be seen as more than a regional actor and regain the influence it had during the height of the Soviet Union. It's no secret that China seeks to surpass us both economically and militarily. One of the primary, one of the primary ways they have attempted to do this is by stealing our technology and intellectual property. The Chinese use American innovation to put our people out of work and stack the rules of the global economy in their favor. I have seen this firsthand as Micron Technologies and Idaho-based memory chip companies had its trade secrets stolen by a Chinese company in an attempt to outcompete the very companies from which they steal. In order to compete on a global scale, there must be adherence to rule of law. That is paramount. Chinese law and practice allow the government total control over its companies. Whether or not Beijing is currently using tech firms like Huawei or ZTE to spy, it certainly could demand it, and no court ruling or constitutional check would be necessary for them. This is a serious threat to our national interest and to the interests of our allies and friends. As to Russia, the Russian government is making efforts to return us to the 1960s, attempting to reignite a nuclear arms race by cheating on nearly all of its arms control agreements. In doing so, Putin is confirming over and over again what many of us already know, and it is time to reexamine and reset our nuclear nonproliferation architecture, and that must include China. While our strategic competition with China and Russia is a more recent development, the threats of the post-9-11 world remain. It is an accomplishment that today ISIS is on the ropes and Al-Qaeda is in retreat. However, having failed states, corruption, lack of economic opportunity, and political oppression are on the rise around the world. According to Freedom House, global liberty declined in 2018 for the 13th consecutive year. At a time when even our allies in Europe are facing homegrown challenges to democracy and the rule of law, the United States needs to stand firm against tyranny and corruption now more than ever. Ranking Member Menendez and I decided on holding this first hearing to provide the opportunity to set the agenda for the future work of this committee. The themes you will hear again and again from witnesses and senators on both sides uh, of the dais, China, Russia, nuclear proliferation, counterterrorism, human rights, and the rule of law are subjects the committee intends to focus on intently in the coming months. 
This committee has a constitutional role in shaping the nation's foreign policy agenda, and both the ranking member and I intend to exercise this authority provided to us by the founding fathers of this great nation. With that, I'll uh, ask my friend and colleague, ranking member Sen uh, Senator Menendez, to make some opening remarks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank you for holding this hearing, and particularly thank you to our distinguished uh, witnesses. Uh, I, uh, I, I join you in many of the things that you said, Mr. Chairman, especially towards the role of this committee uh, in terms of foreign policy, and I'm glad to hear what you've had to say about uh, the pathway forward. I believe it's critically important for this committee to maintain an active role in assessing U.S.'s, the United States' role in the world, understanding the administration's policies, and leveraging our own role as a co-equal branch of government. We face continuing and new challenges from an aggressive Russia, a rising China, and an evolving but still threatening ISIS and al-Qaeda. We face a world of greater strategic competition with more dangerous competitors. So let's be clear about both our challenges and our opportunities. Russia continues to be a leading source of global instability and chaos that directly seeks to undermine foundational American values. In addition to interfering in our democratic processes, Russia has sought to destabilize the democratic values of many of our allies and partners. How we respond to Putin's strategic adventurism will help define our role in the world no less than our efforts to confront the challenge of Chinese President Xi Jinping's neo-Maoist authoritarian great power nationalism. Similarly, the world will judge and indeed follow our lead on how we live up to commitments to those who have put themselves on the front lines of the fight against terrorism. I'd also like to note at the outset of this hearing my concern about the escalation of violence in South Asia in recent days. I urge Islamabad and New Delhi to immediately engage in dialogue to de-escalate tensions. Past Republican and Democratic administrations have played constructive roles at the highest levels to promote peace and stability in South Asia. And if we are to see a peaceful resolution to the current violence, the Trump administration must follow suit. In our interconnected and ever smaller world, we cannot afford only to address the headline-grabbing challenges. New trade patterns, new technologies, new economic <laughs> relationships are both bringing tens of millions out of poverty, but also displacing and disrupting the lives of millions more, many in the United States. Indeed, many of these new technologies, including artificial intelligence, robotics, and genomics, offer huge promises for human advancement but they also threaten to erode valuable democratic institutions, social relationships, and economic order. We face unprecedented migration challenges, including millions of refugees in our own hemisphere and millions more around the world. And we have yet to come to grips with the mounting realities of catastrophic climate change. At a fundamental level, democracy, good governance, human rights, the importance of international institutions and alliances, the values the United States has championed for the past century and that best equip nations to promote peace and prosperity are also under attack around the world. And I'm sad to say, Mr. Chairman, rather than embrace these values on a domestic or global level, President Trump in many cases has chosen to abandon the very American values and institutions that for over two centuries have enabled United States leadership in the world. We are an exceptional nation, a nation founded on ideas and ideals, and it is those ideas and ideals, more than our economic strength, though that has been considerable, and more than our military might, though that has been unparalleled, that has rallied others to our cause as their own, built partnerships and alliances, enabled the free flow of global commerce, 
and allowed us to help shape a world that has served our interests and allowed our values to flourish. All of that is today at risk. When the United States fails to stand by our allies and international institutions, or worse, attacks them, our leaders place at risk the very relationships and institutions that have made us strong and have guaranteed peace and stability for 70 years. When the United States fails to stand up for human rights, or worse, enables the depredations of authoritarian regimes, our leaders set conditions for abuse and turmoil that undermine true stability. When the United States looks the other way as journalists are killed, or our leaders themselves brand the press the enemy of the people, we threaten the vibrancy of civil discourse necessary for the values we as a people cherish. When the United States fails to enforce the rule of law, or our leaders suggest that law enforcement is transactional, we lead the way to creating global disorder. When the United States scales back or cuts our State Department and foreign assistance budgets, or pushes out career, experienced diplomats, we fatally undermine our ability to renew and revive our leadership at just the time when our leadership is more essential than ever before. When America builds walls, America first becomes America alone. America derives its strength from our values. We can never retreat from that core concept. And as we look across the globe, we must lecture less and lead more. The world today stands at an important moment, balanced between order and chaos, between continuing with the decades-long project of building a peaceful and prosperous international order or retreating to isolation and anarchy. The path we are on under this administration, I feel, will leave us less safe and less secure in an increasingly complex world, unable to advance our ideas or to secure our prosperity. I hope we can change that course, and I look forward to the uh, testimony of our witnesses. Thank you very much, Senator Menendez. Uh, and we are now going to hear from our witnesses. We will start with Ambassador uh, William Burns. William Burns is a 33-year veteran of the Foreign Service and holds its highest rank career ambassador. He was just the second Foreign Service officer to become Deputy Secretary of State, an office he held from 2011 to 2014. Prior to that, he was the Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. Before that, he served as a U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation, and prior to that role, Ambassador Burns served as the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. Ambassador Burns is currently president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Ambassador Burns, welcome. Thank you so much. Um, Chairman Risch, Ranking Men Member Menendez, members of the committee, um, it's an honor to be with you and an honor to join Steve Hadley, a friend and former colleague for whom I have deep respect. I'll highlight briefly three points from my written testimony, which I ask be entered into the record. Um, the first point is about the international landscape unfolding before us. Understanding that landscape is an essential prerequisite to crafting an effective strategy. America faces a world that is more crowded, complicated, and competitive than at any point in my three-and-a-half-decade diplomatic career. The global order that emerged at the end of the Cold War has shifted dramatically, creating unprecedented challenges for American statecraft. Great power rivalry is back, bringing with it complex risks and trade-offs for which we're out of practice. Crises of regional order continue to bubble, nowhere more so than in the Middle East, which remains best in class in dysfunction and fragility. And challenges like climate change and the revolution in technology are outpacing the capacities of governments to create workable international rules of the road. The second point I'd make is about America's role on this disordered landscape. 
the bad news is that we're no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block. The good news is that we still have an opportunity to lock in our role as the world's pivotal power, shaping a new international order before others shape it for us. We still have a better hand to play than any of our rivals if we play it wisely. Fashioning a strategy for America in a post-primacy world is no easy task. The most critical test of American statecraft is managing competition with China, cushioning it with bilateral cooperation wherever our interests coincide, and developing a web of regional alliances and institutions that amplify our leverage. The primary aim, it seems to me, is not to contain China or force others to choose sides, but to ensure that China's rise doesn't come at the expense of everyone else's security and prosperity. Meanwhile, this week's summit in Hanoi offers a rare opportunity to reduce the threats posed by North Korea's nuclear and missile programs. That will require a serious, sustained, disciplined diplomatic effort, backed up by economic and military leverage and closely coordinated with our allies in South Korea and Japan and other key regional players like China. We will also have to manage relations with a resurgent Russia, playing a long game within a relatively narrow band of possibilities, from the sharply competitive to the nastily adversarial. But even as we push back firmly against Putin's belligerence, we cannot ignore the need for guardrails that can help us reduce the risks of collisions and manage nuclear dangers. The challenges of renewed great power competition will require us to take a hard look at our involvement in the Middle East. We cannot neglect our leadership role in a region where instability is so contagious, but we ought to continue to shift the terms of our engagement with less demand on the American military and more reliance on creative diplomacy. We also cannot afford to neglect our interests in Africa, a continent whose population will double by the middle of this century, or in our own hemisphere, in many ways the natural strategic home base for the United States. Being a pivotal power is all about putting ourselves in a position to manage relationships and build influence in all directions. That will require us to shore up our alliances, to deal with both immediate crises and long-term global challenges, and to do better when it comes to following through on our international commitments. I worry that we're hemorrhaging our credibility at an alarming pace, especially with our closest allies in Europe, at a moment when the rise of China and the resurgence of Russia make transatlantic ties more, not less, important. And that brings me to my third and final point, this committee's vital role in formulating a new strategy for the decades ahead. You have an opportunity and a responsibility to help bridge the disconnect between an uncertain American public and an often undisciplined Washington establishment. We have to show our fellow citizens that effective American foreign policy not only begins at home in a strong political and economic system, but ends there too in more jobs, more prosperity, a healthier environment, and better security. This committee has an equally important role when it comes to overseeing and shaping the tools of American foreign policy. Diplomacy in the years ahead will matter more than ever as our tool of first resort. We can no longer get our way in the world on our own or by big sticks alone. Unfortunately, American diplomacy has suffered from decades of strategic and operational drift which the current administration has made infinitely worse by its unilateral diplomatic disarmament. Not surprisingly, adversaries are taking advantage, allies are hedging, 
and the global order we did so much to build and defend is teetering. The window for defining America's pivotal role will not stay open forever. Whether we seize the moment of opportunity before us will depend in large measure on whether this chamber and this committee can help recapture a sense of shared vision and shared purpose, whether we can recover a sense of diplomatic agility out of the muscle-bound national security bureaucracy that we've become in recent years, and whether we can come to terms with the realities of a new international landscape and shape it skillfully with our considerable enduring strengths. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador, uh, thoughtful remarks. Now we'll hear from uh, uh, the Honorable Stephen Hadley. Uh, he has uh, served as National Security Advisor for President George W. Bush from 2005 to 2009, where beyond his national security duties, he had special responsibility for U.S.-Russia political dialogue, the Israeli uh, disengagement from Gaza, and developing a strategic, rela a strategic relationship with India. Mr. Hadley is currently a principal at Rice Hadley Gates, an international strategic consulting firm, as well as a senior advisor to the U.S. Institute of Peace, where he has co-chaired uh, a series of senior bipartisan working groups on a broad range of issues. With that, uh, Ambassador Burns, so good to have you here. Thank you, Ch Chairman Risch and Ranking Member Menendez and other distinguished members of this committee. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be before you today with my friend and colleague, Bill Burns. As the chairman has pointed out, after World War II, the United States and its friends and allies created an international system based on democratic values and free market principles. And that system produced unprecedented prosperity and security for the United States and much of the world. But the system must be revised and adapted to reflect both geopolitical and domestic political changes in the last 70 years that have undermined its foundations. At the geopolitical level, the world has seen a return of great power, rivalry and ideological competition. China and Russia are challenging the existing international system and America's dominant role in it. Their alternative model of authoritarian state capitalism is attracting adherence because America's model of democracy and free market appears to be in decline. Much of this is our own doing. Our economic system appears unable to produce sustained, inclusive growth, offering equal opportunity for all our citizens to share in its benefits. And our political system appears to be unable to address longstanding societal cha challenges like immigration, fiscal deficits, entitlement reform, infrastructure, climate change, even though workable solutions have been more or less apparent for years, if not decades. If the United States is to compete successfully in the new world it is facing, it must address its own political and economic problems. And fixing the American model at home will strengthen the American brand abroad. The reemergence of ideological competition parallels what opinion polls clearly show is a crisis of confidence among the citizens of democratic states. They're no longer confident that democracy and free markets work for them at home or are worth promoting abroad. If the, if the United States is to compete successfully in the new world it is facing, it must engage its citizens on the basic principles of democracy and free markets, and restoring American confidence at home will empower American leadership abroad. Once the United States and other democratic societies have removed, re renewed their commitment to these principles, they must engage other states, including China and Russia. 
A system based on democracy and free markets is more likely to produce stable states able to meet the needs of their people, states that will live in peace with one another, and a world in which Americans can prosper in security and freedom. If the United States is to compete successfully in the new world it is facing, it must seek a global consensus behind a revised and adapted international system, basing it on the principles of democracy, free markets, human rights, and the rule of law. It's hard to imagine a revised and adapted international system in which China does not have a major role. Some say that China wants a seat at the table in revising the system, and that China does not want to overturn and replace it. The United States should test this proposition by engaging China in embracing appropriate Chinese suggestions and initiatives, and the United States should seek strategic cooperation with China in meeting global challenges like climate change, environmental damage, terrorism, pandemics, and the societal effects of revolutionary technological change. These are challenges that neither country can solve alone but that must be solved if either country is going to realize its goals, whether the China dream or the American dream. The problem, of course, is that China, with its increasingly diplomatic, economic, and military might, is a strategic competitor like no other America has ever faced. But strategic competitors need not be strategic adversaries. The challenge is to see if China and the United States can be both strategic competitors and strategic cooperators at the same time. The United States should make the effort, but not be naive. It will be very difficult, and it will only succeed if the United States is fully prepared and capable of competing successfully with China if the effort fails, and if China clearly understands this fact. If the United States is to compete effectively in the new world it is facing, it must develop its own cap capabilities in critical technological areas and get in the game and mobilize private industry and private capital, incentivize innovation and technology development, and re-energize cooperation among industry, academia, and government along with our friends and allies. Does the United States still need to be the global leader? Yes. For the problem, sadly, is that there's no one else. Europe is too caught up with its own internal problems, and most of the world does not want either China or Russia to be the global leader. Without U.S. leadership, the international system is, more, is likely to move towards spheres of influence, oppression of smaller states, authoritarian politics, state-controlled economies, and abridgment of human rights. This is not a world in which the United States, its friends and allies, would live in comfort, prosperity, or security, even if they could retain their freedom. America's continued global leadership cannot be taken for granted, but isolationism and retreat do not work. We know because we've tried them before, and history has not been kind to the result. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, also very thoughtful. <clears throat> We're now gonna do a uh, five-minute round of questioning. Uh, and uh, back and forth between uh, each side. Uh, I'm going to reserve uh, my questions uh, for as we go down the pike. And with that, uh, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your very uh, thoughtful and insightful uh, uh, remarks. Uh, I, I just came back recently along with some other colleagues from the Munich Security Conference and from meetings at the European Union and at NATO. Uh, in this world that you both have described, 
Would you say that uh, our multilateral efforts to meet some of these challenges are one of the essential ingredients of potential success? Uh, absolutely, I would. I, I, I believe that what sets the United States apart on this complicated landscape from lonelier powers like China and Russia are precisely our alliances, our partnerships, our capacity to mobilize other countries to deal with many of the broader challenges that Steve was talking about. So uh, I tell you that the, the synthesis of the comments that I got from our friends and allies in Europe is that they, they have a sense that we are going it alone. They do not have a sense of the strong foundational commitment that the United States has had with them. Uh, they see us drifting from them and not in concert with them. And that to me is a huge challenge. It's interesting to listen to the Chinese be there and talk about the importance of multilateralism. Of course, it's somewhat hollow based upon their performance so far, but where there is a, 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 a void, a, you know, it will be filled by those who have their own aspirations. So I think this is critically important for us to be able to move forward. Let me ask you specifically, uh, in the context of you both had experiences with Russia, uh, and you've both addressed China. So what are the risks to U.S. national security of a world without any limitations on Russian nuclear forces? What are the implications for strategic stability if no inspection regime exists to provide information on the size and location of Russian nuclear forces? So, Could you put your microphone on, Ambassador? Thank you. Two things. One, the problem, I think, with alliances is why, while they are a high leverage proposition for the United States and one of our re unique resources for dealing with uh, the world, there is an effort, I think rightly by the Trump administration, to rebalance within the, our alliances and to get our allies and friends to take more responsibility going forward. I think that is part of what a revised and adapted international system is going to look like. I think it's going to have more players and more people who want a seat at the table. Uh, and the trick is to rebalance those relationships without straining them beyond repair. And that's, I think, the challenge the administration has. The dilemma on the nuclear piece in terms of the INF Treaty is that in some sense the Russians very shrewdly put us in a box. They violated the, international, the, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty by deploying a ground launch system that violates its terms. Um, we addressed it over a period of two administrations, asked them to come back into compliance. They didn't, and the dilemma was, do you stay in a treaty where the other side is violating it, or do you accept the opprobrium of getting out of the treaty, which is the box Putin, I think, put us in, because I think he actually wanted to get out of the treaty, too. The question, I think, is going to be in terms of the New START treaty, which I would hope would be both extended but also in some sense renegotiated to address these new emerging nuclear systems that were not that Russia is deploying that were not in contemplation at the time that agreement was put into place that need to be addressed. There are more nuclear systems than are covered by the New START Treaty. And the question is, can we renegotiate, as the head of STRATCOM suggested just yesterday, a new, negotiate a new arrangement that would cover these additional treat, these additional systems that are not covered by the New START Treaty and would also perhaps mm -hmm. cover the intermediate nuclear systems that used to be covered by the INF Treaty. Yeah. 
Um, the, the only thing I would add, Senator, is that um, I, I really do think it would be a huge mistake to let the New START agreement expire, both for the reasons that you mentioned, um, you know, the transparency that, it, that the intrusive verification measures provides to the United States and the ways in which that enhances our security, but also because, at least with regard to the limitation of strategic nuclear weapons, this is a really important part of a, a global regime to try to reduce the dangers of nuclear war. So however profound our differences with Russia are, and they are profound and are likely to remain that way, it is important in my view to preserve some guardrails in that relationship, especially with regard to strategic nuclear weapons. I'll just make one comment. Rebalancing these alliances and having their fair share burden is one thing. Uh, straining them to the point that they believe that they're not an alliance is another thing. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the witnesses uh, for your testimony today and your service to our country. Um, for the last uh, four years in this committee, I've been privileged to chair the Subcommittee on East Asia, uh, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy. The Indo-Pacific, as you know, is home to half of the world's population, half of the world's GDP. It's home to the world's largest, some of the world's largest standing armies and six U.S. defense treaty allies. The security and economic future of the United States lies in a free and open and the right policies in a free and open Indo-Pacific. On December 31st, uh, on New Year's Eve, President Trump signed into law the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act that I carried with Senator Markey. ARIA is a generational effort that has garnered broad bipartisan support. Senator Kuhn, Senator Cardin, Senator Kane, uh, others uh, in Congress were co-sponsors of this effort. A uh, generational effort that has garnered support in Congress, the White House, the business community, policy experts, and leaders on both sides of the Pacific. Uh, ARIA authorized nearly $10 billion in new resources for a long-term strategy to enhance security cooperation with our allies to promote American businesses uh, through trade opportunities and to project American values of democracy, human rights, and rule of law in the Indo-Pacific region. As stated in the editorial in the Manila Times, January 20th, 2019, just last month, with ARIA's passage, America's engagement of the Indo-Pacific has more focus and resources. The new legislation also makes for a long overdue commitment to strategic thinking about the region. Uh, in the 116th Congress, in partnership with Senator Markey, and I must say it's been an incredible bipartisan committee, um, we intend to conduct rigorous oversight to ensure that ARIA is fully implemented and fully funded. Uh, the line of questioning and conversations this morning is focused a lot on building alliances. That is exactly what ARIA is intended to do, to build alliances. And so I would just ask you both, how would you advise the current administration to best utilize the resources provided by ARIA and the language that we have developed to address economic security and values uh, in the Indo-Pacific? I would urge them to embrace it. I think given the challenge presented by China, the United States needs to be present in Asia in every dimension, diplomatically, economically, um, uh, militarily, private sector, public sector, um, and working closely with our friends and allies in the region. It's one of the reasons why I was, uh, I thought it unfortunate that we uh, stopped the further negotiations of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And ARIA embraces a lot of the language and the trade of, of TPP. Exactly. And puts it into uh, the language. And that's why I think it's a, it's a wonderful vehicle to allow us to embrace in a different framework, perhaps, those very principles and connections that we need to strengthen if we are going to be able to manage the emergence of China in Asia. So I think it's a terrific initiative. Thank you. Ambassador Burns? 
I, I agree absolutely. Um, I, it seems to me that you know dealing with the rise of China across the Indo-Pacific is, as you said, Senator, the principal strategic challenge we face. There are several dimensions to a smart strategy. One is to is to try to reshape the terms on trade, investment, and other issues. And here, I think what the administration is doing is right. And, and a lot of those efforts are long overdue. We ought to try to do it, I think, in concert with other countries, whether in Asia or Europe, who share a lot of the same concerns. But the second dimension of strategy is exactly what you're talking about, and that's an affirmative vision for an, an Indo-Pacific region in which China's rise doesn't come at anybody else's expense. And as Steve suggested, that would require, in my view, taking another look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership because that provides a framework that's gonna shape China's own incentives and disincentives for how it operates economically across Asia. So I, I applaud the effort and I just hope that it'll be one important building block in an in effort to not only lay out that affirmative vision, but then build a web of alliances, partnerships, new institutions that gives us the leverage to help deliver on it. Well, and, and as uh, focus today is on uh, Vietnam and what's happening in Vietnam, I think the opportunity for us to continue building that strategic balance for the region is important. Obviously, uh, Vietnam, a long history with China, obviously a neighbor to China. Uh, there are certain things that they're going to be tied together on forever. Uh, but to provide U.S. leadership, provide this kind of legislation, an opportunity for strategic balance uh, with Vietnam, business opportunities, to work with Vietnam on certain uh, democracy, human rights values is, is incredibly important. And I hope that we can continue engaging the administration on funding this effort because to have another great term of rhetoric, uh, rebalance or pivot, simply isn't enough. We have to provide actual leadership on the ground with real face uh, and real dollars involved. Uh, Mr. Hadley, you talked a little bit about the United States should test this proposition by engaging China and embracing appropriate Chinese suggestions and initiatives. I I'm concerned, though, when you look at the opportunity they have with North Korea. Obviously, North Korea has relied on China for its economy, for its resources, for its aid. Uh, we know China continues to uh, turn a blind eye to uh, the, the, the violations of U.S. sanctions, ship-to-ship uh, -ship transfers, uh, some of which have occurred, at least in open source reports, in Chinese territories, uh, territorial waters. Um, I, I don't know how we're going to engage them when they don't want to and they're reluctant to. They could be a critical player when it comes to denuclearization of North Korea, but yet they have refused to be that leader. I'm out of time, uh, I'm gonna stop, but I'm, I'm skeptical of China's willingness to engage uh, in a responsible global capacity. Thank you so much, Senator, and that, that uh, raises a lot of issues that are uh, probably appropriate for another hearing. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things, uh, there are moving parts, sir. Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I thank you very much for holding this hearing. I wanna thank both of our distinguished witnesses for their service to our country and their being here today. Uh, both the chairman and ranking member, both witnesses have mentioned that American values are our strength, uh, that uh, promoting good governance, rule of law, human rights, and our global uh, leadership, working with international partners will give us a more stable international community as in our national security interest. So that's being challenged today by many of the policies of this administration. We could talk about the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, we could talk about the Philippines, we could talk about Russia, we could talk about China. But uh, both of you have mentioned the importance of Asia in your statements in response to your questions. The president today is in an annoyed meeting with Kim Jong-un uh, of North Korea. So I want to talk and get your response in regards to that second summit meeting between Kim Jong-un and President Trump. 
Senator Menendez has already questioned whether America is committed to the future agreements with Russia in regards to INF and, and New START. We know that the Trump administration has withdrawn from the Iran nuclear agreement. And when you try to look at Iran and North Korea, you see some similarities between these two countries. North Korea was much further advanced, is much further advanced on nuclear weaponization than Iran was, and they continue to promote a nuclear program. North Korea has been judged to be in worse violations of human rights towards its own citizens than Iran is. So the president withdraws from Iran without the support of our international partners and is now having a second summit with the leader of North Korea. We've had a hearing in this committee in the last Congress that said the first steps needs to be a declaration of the program if you're gonna have denuclearization. And to my knowledge, there has been no declaration by North Korea of its program and no game plan to understand where they are today so that we can have a roadmap to denuclearize. So my question to you, with a second summit between the President of the United States and the leader of North Korea, are we just giving Kim Jong-un international legitimacy? And what have we accomplished by having a second summit? Uh, I think we don't know. We'll have to see what comes out of this summit. But I think the point you made is a good one. You know, three administrations have done sort of top-down agreements with North Korea to try to get it to denuclearize. And we need, none of those administrations were able to keep North Korea into the deal. And while there's been a lot of criticism of President Trump, those of us who were involved in those issues, efforts that were unblemished by success, I think we ought to give the, give the president's approach uh, a chance. And I think it's going to look different because, as you said, Senator, North Korea is different than Iran. And I think rather than some kind of big overall framework agreement, I think the road they're on is to try to get North Korea to take steps in the direction of denuclearization in return for steps that we would take and move in that over time to build some kind of a relationship between the United States and North Korea and gradually degrade their nuclear weapons capability and their ballistic missile program capability and to try to get Kim Jong-un to the point where he will make a strategic shift and decided he's better off rather than being isolated, so military first, I, I have on limited China. time. So Sorry. compare that Pardon to me. what's happened in Iran with the U.S. pulling out of a nuclear agreement that was being enforced, an agreement, by the way, that I did not agree with initially, right. but disagreed with pulling out. I don't quite get the, the rationale here that we are going to give North Korea a long lead time to make incremental progress where we had significant progress with another country and we pull out. How, how does that... How does that jive? Well, I think it's because the reasons the administration gave for getting out of the Iran deal were, one, because they thought it, they did not like the terms. They did not think the terms lived up to the promise of preventing Iran from finding a way to be a nuclear weapon state, and it didn't deal with other... But we had inspections, in the we had limits on what they could enrich, I and we have that. nothing in North Korea. I agree. 
Mr. Burns, yeah. you have any? No, statement? the only thing I would add is, if you'll recall, Senator, the interim agreement that we did with the Iranians at the end of 2013, which froze their program, rolled it back in some significant respects, and returned for very limited sanctions relief. We preserved almost all of our sanctions leverage for the later comprehensive talks, and we were able to introduce some quite intrusive verification and monitoring measures as well. If, if you could get something like that as a first significant step in dealing with North Korea, setting aside the irony of this, given the administration's view of the Iranian nuclear agreement, that I would suggest would be a significant tangible step forward. The risk, as you suggested, is that we end up getting caught, caught up in triumphalist rhetoric um, and give too much too soon in return for too little. I hope that's not the case. I hope we're able to make some hard-nosed tangible progress, that would be a good thing if we can. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, uh, well thought out remarks. I, I would just observe that uh, dealing with uh, North Korea and uh, Iran are two different situations in that they both have nuclear problems as far as we're concerned, but Iran's problems go way beyond that when it comes to dealing with the terrorists and, uh, and that sort of thing. So. I would just argue both countries go well beyond their nuclear No, there's problems. no question about that. <laughs> no, I, I agree with that 100 percent, but uh, those, the, the uh, meddling they're doing in the, in the Middle East is, uh, is a very bad situation for us. So with that, uh, and, and thank you, though, I, I well thought out. Senator Romney. Mr. Hadley and uh, Mr. Burns, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate the service that you've given to our country and the uh, wisdom that you provided this morning. Thank you also to Chairman Risch and Ranking Member Menendez for uh, your comments and questions and your leadership of this committee. This is, uh, in my view, a critical time for this committee's work. And, uh, and under the leadership of these uh, two gentlemen, I hope we're able to make the kind of progress that the country needs. Um, following the, uh, the Second World War, uh, Dean Acheson, uh, Harry Truman, and others worked together, George Kennan uh, worked together to uh, establish a foreign policy for our nation, objectives and a strategy, if you will, that we followed quite consistently over the, the many decades. We now have encountered a very different world than that that existed following the, the Second World War. And, uh, and there are some, like myself, who believe that we haven't devised a, a new strategy or even set objectives for what we hope to accomplish over the coming uh, decades or, or century. Um, one, I, I question, is that right? Is it, in fact, that we are um, we're sort of flailing um, with an uncertain uh, path uh, in the face of nations like Russia and China that apparently do have very clear objectives and strategies? China's even published them. Um, and, and if that is the case, um, uh, let me ask you, um, how do we go about the process of establishing a, a clear set of objectives and strategy for our foreign policy going forward? And, and do you have any suggestions of an element or two or three or whatever uh, that ought to be part of the uh, strategic thinking for uh, the, the vision for America over the coming decades? Well, thanks, Senator. Um, I think the first step is to understand the landscape and the way in which it's changed, not since, you know, the, the era of, you know, Atchison and others, but in the, you know, since the end of the Cold War, which, you know, 
launched a moment of 20 years or so, <laughs> which we really were the singular dominant player in the international system. I think we have to recognize that that landscape is more competitive now and recognize also our strengths. I don't think we need to be defeatist about this at all. We still, as I suggested in my opening remarks, have a better hand to play than any of our rivals. The question is how we play it. And I think recognizing that one of our great assets is our ability to draw on alliances, to build partnerships with new emerging countries like India, for example, and then to think strategically about our priorities, which, as both of us suggested, I think has to start with Asia. It doesn't end there. And ironically, I think that makes transatlantic ties more rather than less important because we both share concerns, we and our principal European allies, about China's rise, about Russia's resurgence. And at the, at the same time, my last point is we also have to take into account that range of truly global challenges well beyond the reach of any one state, whether it's the revolution in technology, climate change, just as two profound examples, and look for ways in which we can take the lead in mobilizing other countries to address them, because those are going to be, especially with regard to climate, I think a truly existential challenge. Thank you. Senator, I would say we, we need to revise and adapt the international system to reflect the new change circumstances. The question is, is it going to be based on our principles or somebody else's? And that's why one of the first steps, something we did at the Atlantic Council to roll out a declaration of principles that takes the traditional principles under the old order, but revises and adapted for the new situation. That begins the process. We're going to have to engage China on these principles, and I think whether we're going to successfully adapt that, that uh, in, in, international system is going to depend a lot on our relationship with China, and that's why I focus so much <clears throat> on my testimony. I think we know the problem. I don't think we have a strategy at this point on China. I think it's one of the things that this committee could really do to have an intensive set of hearings on China's strategy, because I, I think we know the problem. I don't think we have a strategy. I think it starts by getting ourselves in a position so that we can compete successfully with China. And I think if we do that, there are selective things on which we can get China to cooperate with us. But first, we've got to fix, I think, our, our, our foreign policy begins at home. We've got to have a firm foundation here at home, engage with China, but make it clear to China that we're also prepared to compete with it. And if they're not willing to cooperate, they'll be on the short end of the stick. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Senator Coons. And thank you, Chairman Rich, Ranking Member Menendez, and I'd like to thank Ambassador Burns and um, Security Advisor Hadley. Um, thank you for your decades of service and your very insightful uh, framing comments that have led to this uh, conversation. Uh, I'll just note uh, that both of you made the point that the single best thing we can do to promote and protect democracy abroad is to get our act together here at home. Um, I'll just comment that all of us are engaging in a broad and searching and constructive and important hearing with you, yet our nation is glued to the television um, watching testimony in the other chamber about stuff that doesn't necessarily advance democracy. Can I put it that way? Transparency does, um, but we just had a government shutdown of 35 days that, as best I could tell, amounted to a fight over the word wall versus fence. Um, in Munich, I heard grave concern about our drift and our lack of reliability. Um, I really appreciated the broad group um, that put out these principles uh, to reassert our engagement and our commitment to them. Um, later today, the Senate Human Rights Caucus uh, will hold another 
event focusing on the bipartisan effort to combat human trafficking and human slavery globally. I think central to our pushing back on China and Russia is continuing to reassert our commitment to core principles like human rights. I couldn't agree more with you that coming up with, as a full committee, a thoughtful, well-reasoned strategy for uh, confronting and engaging and potentially partnering with China is the most important thing we can do. Um, but I'd like to ask you for a minute, if I could, about fragile states and your engagement and role um, in delivering a report yesterday. So the United States Institute of Peace um, convened an impressive, broad working group that both of you served on to come up with a strategy for engaging fragile states and preventing extremism. 18 years after 9-11, we've spent almost $6 trillion on combating extremism, not exclusively um, of the Islamic variety, but mostly. And we should be able to pivot to Asia and engage with China, but we won't if we can't find a better path forward for conducting preventive investments on a multilateral basis to confront terrorism. I'd be grateful if both of you would, could briefly speak to your work on that task force on extremism in fragile states and the recommendations that came out of it. Ambassador Burns, why do you think the U.S. government can do a better job than we've done to ensure that fragile states don't become failed states, um, that we don't have, for example, Somalia be repeated in Ethiopia or Kenya or South Sudan? Um, and Mr. Hadley, if you would, the report calls for the creation of an international fund with a different approach to preventing um, fragile states becoming failed states. I'd be interested in your thoughts on how that fund would work, why there is a compelling role model, um, and how you see that going forward, if you would, in order. Thank you. Sure. Well, thanks so much, Senator. And, and I was privileged to join Steve and a number of others on the task force that you mentioned. I mean, I think briefly, um, we've all learned, I think, over the last two decades since the terrible shock of 9-11 that, you know, um, the use of Connecticut Act kinetic action of military resources are absolutely essential in dealing with the al-Qaeda's or the ISIS's of the world. But that, that kind of terrorism, as profound a threat as it is, is oftentimes a, a symptom of a deeper extremism which thrives in fragile or collapsing societies. And so one thing I think we both agree is on the need, and it won't surprise you as a, a recovering diplomat that I believe in this, on prevention, on looking at places where you have partners in place who are committed to good governance, and that's not gonna be in every fragile place in the world, both in governments and in civil society with whom we and other international partners can work um, to try to, to create some models of success. Over the last 20 years, Colombia is one example of that where through you know, administrations of both parties, the United States working with some courageous leaderships in Colombia was able to make real progress. We need to look for other places where we can make that kind of long-term investment, not just the United States on its own, but working with other international partners who share that concern. Fragile states are places where terrorists recruit and other powers meddle. They're the problem. The problem in fragile states is governance and and the models we talk about in the report is to, to go with the Millennium Challenge Account kind of model where you partner with the, uh, leaders of states who understand the problem is governance and want to deliver more for their people. Partner with them in a 
program they embrace and develop to advance their societies, then go to the Global Fund, as we did for the Global Funds for AIDS Relief, get the international community to contribute, and then fund that kind of program. It's really a combination of the MCC, the Global Fund, partnering with local states, and leaders who are willing to address the problem of governance that is the problem in fragile states. Well, and you can think of lots of challenges we face that would be addressed or reduced if, for example, the, um, the, the nations of El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala um, actually had a successful decade-long progress towards stability, transparency, rule of law, or if the countries of the Sahel had a decades-long uh, progress towards transparency and stability, um, and we could then focus on uh, the bigger challenges that all of us agree we have to focus on. But if we don't deal with, there are more extreme, there's more extremism, there's more fragile states today than there was 18 years ago, and we've spent $6 trillion. We need a different strategy, and I'm reintroducing a bill in this Congress with six members of this committee that would authorize this new strategy and move us towards funding a preventive strategy to dealing with failed states. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Coons. Senator Young. Mr. Burns, Mr. Hadley, thanks so much for your service to our country and for being here today and for your thoughtful testimony. Um, both of you have provided some thoughtful commentary uh, in your written submissions as well as your uh, words here today with respect to our strategic competition uh, with China. I'm particularly concerned with our economic competition. This is something I credit the administration for elevating the predatory economic practices of, of the Chinese, as have my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. Uh, uh, I think all Americans recognize that we have to deal with uh, intellectual property theft and, and forced technology transfer and the dumping of, of uh, manufactured goods into this country and, and other illicit behaviors that violate the, the uh, liberal international order that uh, we invited China into uh, back in 2000. With that said, I, I am... Um, I'm concerned that a bilateral approach to addressing these matters is not going to be effective. Uh, I, I think we'll end up ultimately with some sort of uh, agreement with respect to tariffs and, and the tit-for-tat that we've seen that um, does not address the root issues of intellectual property theft and some of the other things. And I think we need more leverage, candidly or perhaps another international forum outside of the WTO, because it's so difficult to reform the WTO uh, in order to address these matters. And I, I just wanted to open up uh, the floor to you gentlemen to see if uh, you have some ideas that we ought to entertain here on this committee and encourage the administration to adopt, working with our international allies and partners to help address this, what will be probably multi-generational issue. Um, thanks, Senator, very much. I mean, I, I think um, I, I really appreciate the question, and I think in terms of American strategy, it does have to have two dimensions, and both of those dimensions uh, can't be purely bilateral. The defensive dimension, just as you said, is the overdue effort to push back against Chinese practices which disadvantage us. The one missing element, I think, in our strategy so far over the last couple of years has been you know, not working more energetically with lots of other countries who share those same concerns. And instead, we've launched off on kind of um, you know, second flank trade wars in steel and aluminum, whether it's with the European Union or with Japan or others, rather than making our priority 
um, you know, trying to push back against Chinese practices. The second dimension is the affirmative, and that's where, as both of us said, I do think it was a mistake for the United States to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because if you want to deal effectively with China and its predatory economic practices over time, you have to create an affirmative framework for the kind of Asia that we want to see and lots of our friends and partners want to see across Asia with a set of high-end international standards that reflect our values and also going to position American business to compete effectively in the future. So I, I agree with you. I think this is not just a question, important as bilateral efforts are, it's got to be within a wider framework. Mr. Hadley. I think it's great that there is bipartisan support for the proposition that these structural elements of China's economy that take advantage of us need to be addressed. I view the, I think the, they are dealing with these structural issues, so far as I can tell, in the bilateral negotiations that is going on. We're going to be at this for a long time <laughs> to get China on the right sheet of paper in terms of these things. So I would say view this as kind of a pump primer or a jump start. I would hope that we would then bring other allies in behind the effort. I think WTO reform is something that we need to be doing and we need to be leading on. So I would hope that this would start a process that would be the inclusive one that you described. So I know these, these core issues of intellectual property theft and the others are on the agenda. Uh, and I, to that extent, I think they will be addressed. Some, some laws will be promulgated in, in China. Some new rules will be put in place. But I think the key is enforcement mechanisms. And it, it strikes me that we're going to need some new enforcement mechanisms. Perhaps uh, the administration is working on that. Uh, I'm not aware of, of what new enforcement mechanisms might be included in, in a potential agreement. But uh, do you agree that's what we should be looking for? Absolutely. This is, you know, we've heard this rhetoric out of China before. It's always where the rubber meets the road that things don't seem to happen. That's why I think we're going to be in a long process for this. We need enforcement mechanisms, and we need others to join with us in enforcing those mechanisms. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Young. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for being here and for your years of service. Thank you for uh, challenging this committee to uh, find some enduring common ground on uh, the challenges and priorities that we're talking about. I agree that that's more important than ever, and I hope that we take up um, your call to action. Um, Ambassador Burns, um, I wanted to ask you to expand on your comments about the future of the EU and NATO. Um, Secretary Pompeo uh, gave a really remarkable speech in Brussels in December that got very little attention here but had serious reverberations throughout the continent in which he engaged in a pretty remarkable broadside against multilateralism uh, in defense of sovereignty. Um, and you combine that together with the cheering of Brexit, the um, uh, cheerleading of some of the nationalist movements on the continent, and I worry, um, I think many of us worry, uh, about the work that we are doing both quietly and loudly to uh, undermine uh, the European Union and uh, NATO as well. Um, t tell us about um, the status of both of those alliances and how this committee um, can do work to try to uh, make clear that this is in the long-term <laughs> interest of the United States to support both. 
Thanks, Senator. Um, well, the first point I'd make is, um, you know, I think with all of our focus on Asia, which makes perfect sense as you look at over the next couple of decades, um, it does make transatlantic ties actually more rather than less important because we share a lot of common interests and we certainly share values and ways which makes that transatlantic relationship unique. Second, I think we do have to recognize that, you know, our, many of our closest allies in Europe and the European Union in particular are in the midst of a, an existential crisis. I mean, they're having a nervous breakdown at the same time as in some ways we are on this side of the Atlantic. And, and you know, while we don't get a vote on issues like Brexit, the United States certainly has an interest in those issues, as an interest in a vibrant European Union on whom we can rely and on whom Europeans can rely when they look at their relationship with the United States. Um, you know, Europe faces challenges of uncertainty about whether they can rely on the United States, and I don't think the Secretary's speech in Brussels helped that. Um, I think they, they face uncertainties as you look across the Mediterranean, at the south, and the insecurities that come out of the Middle East and Africa. And certainly there's the specter of a resurgent Russia and Putin's belligerence as well. So for all those reasons, we ought to be paying a lot of attention and investing in those alliances. And with regard to NATO, as Steve said, you know, of course we need to push for more burden sharing. That's not a novel insight for this administration. Its predecessors have also pushed. Maybe we didn't do it as hard as we should have, but there does need to be a better balance. But at its core, I think that relationship, both with the EU and with NATO, is as or more important than ever for the United States. You, you cannot combat the growing hegemony of China without the United States and Europe being together in that project. Um, uh, Mr. Hadley, I wanted to point you to a really interesting turn of phrase that um, Ambassador Burns used at the end of his testimony. He, he asked whether we can recover, quote, a sense of diplomatic agility out of the muscle-bound national security bureaucracy that we've become in recent years. I thought that was a really interesting challenge to us. And I think about that in the context of Syria, where we've been told over and over by experts before this committee that this is a political problem without a purely military solution. And yet the United States has had 2,000 troops inside Syria and virtually no diplomats, in part because 19-year-old Marines are pretty well-equipped to go very quickly into uh, conflict zones, and 50-year-old diplomats are not. You put that side-by-side side with Russia and China, who, if nothing else, are much more nimble than the United States in taking advantage with pace of opportunities uh, and weaknesses around the world. Um, what are your recommendations in a short amount of time as to how we try to make diplomacy more nimble, how we try to get people who can solve complex political problems into those places, uh, as opposed to what we do today, which is put very capable war fighters uh, into these places who may not be as well equipped as others in our national security infrastructure? I'll give you a short answer. Uh, I think the appointment of Jim Jeffrey as special envoy for Syria, some, an experienced discipline, d diplomat, um, is an effort to put someone at the front of our diplomacy who is not chained by the bureaucracy, can be more nimble. But in order for him to see, succeed, he has to have leverage. And the problem we've had in Syria is we haven't been present in a form that gives us leverage remotely similar to what the Russians and the Iranians have. So it's great to have an agile, flexible diplomat, but if we don't give him the gravitas behind him and the leverage behind him to achieve a good result that serves our interests, he'll fail. Does leverage only come through uh, military deployments? No, doesn't only. But in a place like Syria, in a combat zone, 
It's a the language they speak. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I appreciate your holding this hearing. Great way to kick off your tenure, to have a yeah. broad-based look at America's role in the world. The problem is uh, we only have five minutes to ask five hours worth of questions. Uh, We're going to have some more hearings, so good. you'll get a shot. But these, these two are, are <clears throat> great diplomats uh, in, their, in, in, in their time and great public servants, and uh, we appreciate your service to our country and your continued advice to us. Um, Hadley, in particular, I had the chance to be one of his colleagues, so I saw the kind of... Uh, advice he gives the President of the United States and the great respect he has among his peers. So many issues, and let me just focus on Russia and China quickly. Uh, one, Steve, I read your piece recently in Foreign Policy with regard to uh, the Kerch Straits and what we should be doing. You advocated a much more aggressive uh, response to, um, uh, to, to Russia and talked about the fact that after Crimea there was uh, very little response, and even on the eastern border, uh, not adequate response in Donbass. What should we do specifically right now with regard to there are obviously uh, illegal activities in, in the Kerch Strait. The article suggested that we should have sanctions in response to... Specific uh, sanctions just as to that issue. Specific sanctions tied to the incident in Kerch where uh, basically Russia broke an agreement that they had with Ukraine mm -hmm. that there would be joint sovereignty over that strait. Secondly, we need to take steps that are preventive so that, so that Russia does not mistake the lack of response for an invitation to do more. Mm -hmm. There are areas north of there that are important for water supplies for Crimea, concerned right. that the Russians might take another chunk out of Ukraine. Freshwater reservoirs, yeah. We should be putting observers and uh, forces there to uh, ensure that, that Putin is not tempted, and I think we need greater naval operations in that area and in the Baltic uh, Sea for the same reason. And pushing NATO to do more in the region uh, with regard to the naval presence. Uh, uh, so quickly on another Russia issue, and this is one actually Senator Murphy and I have worked a lot on over the last several years, and we now have this Global Engagement Center at the State Department. We have promoted and funded um, disinformation, propaganda. Um, Ambassador Burns, when you were in Russia, uh, you saw this, um, but I would imagine you would say that between the period you were there, which I think was around 2005, and today that things have changed dramatically. What should we be doing that we're not doing to push back, and do you all have information about the Global Engagement Center? How do you think that's being set up? Um, well, thanks, Senator. I mean, no, I think it's a very smart initiative. I, I think there are lots of things that we can do. I mean, first is to recognize the severity of the problem. And, and you know, the 2016 elections, I think, drove that home to all of us as well. But it's not that's not the end of it. I mean, that challenge is continuing, not just for us, but also for our allies in Europe, where, you know, Putin and the Kremlin, I think, are past masters are trying to meddle in problems there as well. So I think there are things that we can do that help identify, you know, working not only as a government, but with the private sector to identify efforts, whether it's using bots or others, to um, to infiltrate um, you know into uh, our systems as well. There are things we can do to you know help strengthen and safeguard um, you know our own electoral processes as well. There's there's examples and experience that we can share with the Europeans who face many of those same challenges. Um, and so again, I think this is an area where making common cause with some of our transatlantic partners on the Russian disinformation threat is a really smart long-term investment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Steve, any thoughts? Okay. Uh, moving to China quickly, we're doing a, a, a hearing tomorrow with regard to Chinese influence here in our country with regard to our colleges, universities, and our K through 12 institutions. Uh, these are the so-called Confucius Institutes. Uh, report is coming out today. 
Um, they spend about 150 million bucks a year through uh, really a propaganda arm of the, of the Chinese government to uh, fund these institutes, uh, colleges and universities, about 100 of them are happy to take the money and uh, uh, work with uh, the Confucius Institutes. Uh, my understanding is, and we'll talk about this tomorrow more, uh, that these individuals who come from China uh, uh, have a contract with the Chinese government, including the application of Chinese law. And uh, there are visa issues, there are issues with regard to transparency. Uh, university is not reporting the payments, which they're required to do uh, after uh, it meets a cer certain threshold. Any thoughts about, uh, about that issue broadly, and then more specifically, um, uh, you know, with regard to influence here in this country through our university system, research, technology transfer with regard to China? I think one of the things that's important is to expose what is going on. People are very sensitive to Russian interference in our situation, in our country internally, not so aware of what the Chinese are doing. So first step is to exposure. Second of all is a balanced reaction. The solution, in my view, is not to exclude all Chinese graduate students from any American graduate school. There is a lot of value added we get from being an open society where students from all over the world can come and study in our institutions. But having guidelines and restrictions that keep China from using these students as a source of stealing intellectual property and national security and secrets is, is just common sense. So the question is, expose the problem, get people aware, but then avoid an overreaction and, and try to craft a sensible set of policies that in some sense take a little bit of a middle road and balance um, competing considerations that are at stake here. Yeah. Yeah. My time is up. I like your idea of a strategic competitors and strategic partners, and that would be consistent with that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to our witnesses jumping right in. Um, you've each testified to the value of NATO and the importance of a, a strong nation having strong alliances versus a strong nation being a lonely nation. I have a bill that uh, Senator Kuhn, Senator Gardner, Senator Rubio, we've introduced together to clarify that NATO, we would not withdraw from NATO unless there would be an act of Congress or a Senate uh, vote on that. Uh, NATO was a treaty ratified by the Senate. The Constitution says treaties must be ratified by the Senate. The Constitution is silent about how treaties come to an end, but there's a general understanding that when the Constitution is silent about that, it is an area where Congress can legislate. Would specifying that we would not withdraw from NATO absent a vote of the Senate or Congress send a positive message about the importance of that alliance to the United States? Yes, it certainly would, Senator. Completely agree, and I, I want to commend the senators who joined what I think was the largest congressional delegation ever at the Munich Security Conference. I think it was critically important to put the Congress and the American people on record as supporting NATO. I, I salute you for having done it. I think this would be very worthwhile legislation for the same reason. Mr. Chair, I'd hope we might have some opportunity to discuss that in committee, especially given the 70th anniversary in April. Uh, second, should the United States policy still be to promote a two-state solution between Israel and Palestine? Um, have the facts, <coughs> Israeli settlements on the one hand, or the fractured nature of Palestinian leadership, especially between Gaza and the West Bank, have they made it essentially an unrealistic goal, or is it a realistic goal that we should continue to promote, and if so, how? 
I mean, Senator, it's a really good question because I think the chances of producing a two-state solution have become uh, more and more elusive over time for lots of different reasons. You mentioned most of them. I still think it's an it, it's a extremely important um, aspect of American policy to promote that. I think if you look at the reality of what a one-state solution would look like, in other words, the reality in which you know, our friend and ally in Israel, in the land that it controls from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, um, you know, has a political reality in which Arabs, as you look at over the next four or five years, are likely a majority in that area. It's hard to see how you sustain the kind of Jewish democratic state that all of us have been committed to for so long. And I think that's, yeah. that's the reality, quite apart from the legitimate aspirations of Palestinians for a state of their own. So as elusive as the goal is, and it's getting more elusive every day, um, I think there remains a sense of urgency about that. I do not underestimate the obstacles in the path of it, but I think we will all regret it if we wake up five or 10 years from now and it turns out that that outcome is impossible. Mr. Hadley. I don't know what the administration's uh, long-promised uh, initiative on Middle East peace is going to look like. I think we'll need to see that. I would think it would be very useful for this committee to focus on a study that was done by the Institute for National Security uh, Studies in Israel, which is a proposal for concrete steps on the ground that would improve the life of the Palestinians. Um, and, but at the same time would preserve the possibility for a two-state solution down the road, because I agree with Bill, I just don't think the politics in either community, either Israel or the Palestinian community, are, are, are ready for a two-state solution now. But this was a very interesting set of proposals to try to help Palestinians build institutions, improve uh, livelihood, improve economic activity, and keep open the option for a two-state solution. I think that's the best we can do right now. One of the things that I hear on the Armed Services Committee often is that we should avoid activity that, that, dri that tends to drive our adversaries together, and occasionally we'll hear testimony there about Russia and China cooperating more together. There were Russian military exercises recently that the Chinese participated in. From your vantage point, uh, do you worry about Russia and China cooperating more, um, or do you think that's, you know, that there are natural limits of that cooperation and we need to worry about it? No, I, I think it, it ought to be an object of concern for us. I think it's more than just a marriage of convenience right now between China and Russia. I think they share um, a, a broad interest in chipping away at an American-led order um, around the world. Um, having said that, I, I also think you're right, Senator, that if you play this out over the next 5, 10, 15 years, I don't think Russians are going to be any more comfortable being China's junior partner than they were being the junior partner of the United States in the you know, immediate post-Cold War era. Um, and so I think whether you look at the Belt and Road Initiative by China and you know, the likely political collisions, at least in Central Asia, that you can see, there's going to come a time, I think, when Russians, probably beyond the Putin era, um, see more of an interest in a healthier relationship with Europe, with the United States, as a hedge, in a way, against China's rise. So I don't, I'm not predicting that's coming anytime soon, but it's something that we ought to at least be aware of as we look at longer-term strategy. Excellent. Well, I'm over time. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank Thanks you. to the witnesses. Thank you, Senator Kane. Senator Rubio. Thank you both for being here. Um, I think this is a really important conversation. We spend a lot of time and um, talking about tactics around here, but if tactics aren't driven by a strategic aim, um, 
then, then, then I think it's difficult both to justify it to the American people, and ultimately you just lose yourself in, in why you're doing things. And, and I, I think this is a long overdue conversation, and I'm very happy that the chairman and the ranking member chose this topic, because we've got some decisions to make about our strategic view that I think could be a bipartisan one and, and a strong consensus in our foreign policy making um, in this new era. I, there are a lot of challenges, but there, there are two I want to ask you about. The, the first is you know, this rise of autocratic regimes who go through some of the rituals of democracy. You know, they have an election, but the, nobody can run against them, and, and there's no free press and things of this nature. Um, and and they also have a, elements of state control, capitalism, and so they're, the rise of these, and they're sort of out there arguing to people, look how stable we are, we're prosperous, and we have stability, and then they point to the West and the upheaval we're facing across the developed nations of the West. Uh, some of it is a function of technology and globalization that have impacted the working class and the middle class and leading to real upheaval that's manifested politically. The other interrelated is we have our first near-peer competitor in China since the end of the Cold War. I mean, yeah, Russia is a uh, strategic competitor in key parts of the world, largely as a spoiler and increasingly as a aggravator, but, but not like China. In fact, I would argue they pose a comprehensive challenge, unlike even the, so even the Soviet Union was never an industrial or a technological challenger in that realm. And, and the Chinese are spreading their model of authoritarian capitalism, and they're, they're trying to shape these post-World post War II institutions <coughs> in a way that's sort of beneficial to them. You know, and, then, and then you also see them in these efforts to dominate the Asia-Pacific region, most certainly be a dominant power there. They view that as their right historically. And, and then, of course, challenge the U.S. across multiple domains across the world. And so I think there's two big strategic decisions we need to make. The first is, uh, are we going to defend liberal democracy and, in particular, the value of individual human rights? Uh, because if we're not pushing back on that, both in words and in action, it's not just a nice thing to do, right? There's a strategic value to doing that if there's no counterbalance to this authoritarian movement. And then the other is China, where we are kind of been told there's only two choices, at least in the broader scheme. One is that we either try to modify their rise or we try to stop their rise. And, and I think the question is whether there is a third option there, and that is some level of strategic equilibrium. In essence, we don't want there to be an imbalance in the relationship because it could very well lead to conflict. And, and that's why we have to be careful about things like Made in China 2025, right? They want to dominate these 10 key industries around from aerospace to agriculture machinery and technologies and the like. And just back on the first point, it, on the uh, pushing back on, on this autocratic rise, it also explains why we should care about the internment of Uyghur Muslims in, in China, why we should support those like in Venezuela that are, that are demanding democracy through their constitutional order is why we should care about the murder of Khashoggi. Uh, you don't chop people up in consulates. Um, and because we don't push back, we've completely surrendered that. So on, just on those two points, I mean, it, first of all, I think you would agree that it's important for there to be sort of a strategic consensus in order to drive our tactics and our policies. And particularly on the China point, uh, is the right way to frame it or is the right view that this is not about constraining or const they're going to be a great power. It is about ensuring that there is a strategic balance between the countries because the absence of that balance could lead to conflict. I think you've got it just right. You know, after the end of the Cold War, we thought the ideological struggle was over and we had won. And I agree with you, in the emergence of China, we see a competitor like we've never known before in terms of its, its scale across the board, diplomatic, economic, militarily. 
Um, they do have a, a, a different model than we do. They are competing actively, advocating that model in the international system, and we're hardly in the game. Uh, we need to start reaffirming our confidence in our model and fix our problems at home so the brand looks good internationally because it's working effectively at home, uh, and then compete uh, in the ideological struggle with China. I think in the end of the day, if we do that, we will win. Uh, but I think at this point, we're not in the game. I agree with you on China. That's why I tried to say, can we be strategic competitors and strategic cooperators at the same time? And that means some areas we are going to have to, be, for example, like the digital infrastructure, where I think we are going to have to not make sure that China does not monopolize or dominate that area. Uh, there are other areas where I think they're less strategic to us, where we can cooperate. We're going to have to try and find some balance. Just um, two quick comments, Senator, if I could add. First, on China, I absolutely agree with you. This is not an issue, in my view, so much of constraining China, because its rise is going to continue. The question is, into what world does it rise? And we have the capacity through you know, the rejuvenation of ourselves, our political and economic system at home, and then working with friends and allies across the Indo-Pacific and around the world and adapting institutions to help shape that world into which China's rise occurs and to help shape its own incentives and disincentives for its actions in that world. And finally, on human rights, I couldn't agree with you more. This is not just a moral issue, as important as that is for the United States. It's a practical source of our influence in the world, especially if we're consistent about this, and we're willing to call to account not just adversaries, which is easier to do, but also friends of ours. Because it's not, it's not as if you know, they're doing a favor to us by listening to those kind of concerns. State after state around the world, it's particularly true in the Middle East, and we saw this in the Arab Spring, that don't pay attention to those basic indignities or human rights become brittle and break and they don't become reliable partners over time. So I couldn't agree with you more. It's very important for us to factor that in for practical reasons to the way in which we deal with other societies. Thank you both. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, when you're last, everything's been said, you just haven't said it. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I've been sitting over here trying to remember my days with Steve and others to ask some intelligent questions, and I want to make a couple of suggestions. First of all, I think that Senator Coons was right on target. We embarrassed ourselves in the shutdown, we being Republicans and Democrats. A lot of things we said and were on TV at a time when all the other things were going on, I think it sent the wrong signal to our friends and neighbors and probably to our adversaries too. I think also that what everybody did in going to Munich, I did not go to Munich, but that was a great message to send. I've been to that conference and at the particular time we're in now that sent a positive message on NATO. I'd like to make a couple suggestions. There is one thing out there that we could bring up in this committee, do thorough hearings on, and challenge ourselves to either adopt it or not adopt it, and that's the law of the seas. That affects China, that affects Russia, and that affects the United States more than any other thing that's out there. Now, it's controversial, and on the conservative side, there are a lot of people who don't like it. But the Seabed Authority in Jamaica oversees the distribution of the fees that are paid to the UN body that does the management of this and gives you access to rare earth minerals in the South China Sea, the Arctic changing on the North Pole, things that are big issues, the North Pole with Russia and the South China Sea with China. So I think a great way to bring something up that's laying there for us to talk about 
that affects our relationships with, with uh, Russia and China is to bring up the law of the sea somewhere down the line and talk about that vis-a-vis -vis us being in the world and not being a part of that treaty. It's very interesting that we're only Iran and Venezuela and a couple others than us aren't members of it. Everybody else is already signed it. So we're, we're a little late to the party, but we may be per perfect timing to accomplish what you want to, that is engage more in discussions that we should have. Mr. Burns, in your statement, uh, I took it that you were, uh, did, did not think using tariffs and using trade negotiations vis-a-vis foreign relations is a good thing to mix. Is that, was I right with that or wrong with that? No, I mean, I think there are instances where we can use tools like that to get better ends. I just, my only point, at least with regard to China, was that I think we get farther uh, in addressing some of the structural problems, real problems we have with China, when we're working with other countries who share those same concerns. And my comment was more about us, while at the same time we're pushing the Chinese rightly um, to reverse some of those trade and investment practices that disadvantage us, it would make sense to try to make common cause with Asian allies, with European partners as well, rather than start sort of second and third front tariff conflicts with them at the same time. That was my only point. I, I, I agreed with you on the TPP. I, th I was sorry that we dropped out of that, but I have to admit it, it had some positive effect too by getting people thinking. Now, we still need to engage with China and not having a trade agreement in that part of the world is dangerous for our country, I think, and I think we need to do it. But it, it, I have found that some of the strategy that's been used in those tariff negotiations have been pretty neat to get people to the table and other things that they weren't at the table before. My last thing for the chairman is this. I'll, I'll make you an offer, Mr. Chairman. This past weekend, I entertained two couples in Atlanta from the northeastern part of the country, one of them a professor, and took him to the Museum of Civil Rights and Human, Re Human Relations in Atlanta. One of the most moving experiences they had had, and I think one, we could have a one-day Codell sometime this year for the committee and go to Atlanta and go through the, the, that three-story uh, museum, which includes all the King papers, but lots of other things too all about human rights and all about civil rights, and then take some of the programs that have come from the Carter Center and from Emory University and from Georgia Tech. Sam Nunn's institute is at Georgia Tech, and his, his Nunn-Luger initiative is managed out of that location. You could put together a great one day for the committee, fly down and come back, but learn a lot about human and civil rights and also about what we've been doing through other mechanisms, both Nunn and others, in terms of foreign relations. So I would, I'll be happy to volunteer as a tour guide if you decide that's a good thing for us to do. Thank you. Now you go back. Well, that completes our first round, uh, but I will uh, yield to Senator Menendez. Uh. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I just have one question I want to follow up, but I, I want to say to my dear colleague, uh, Senator Isaacson, I agree with you on the law of the seas. I conducted hearings when I was a chairman of the committee towards the law of the seas. I think it's critical in so many ways to our national security and strategic interests to be part of the law of the seas uh, at a time in which, uh, you know, America is uh, a Atlantic state, it's a Pacific state, it's, it has uh, its nexus uh, uh, in uh, the Arctic. I mean, it, it has critical interests and, and I would embrace that. I, I would just hope that we could overcome the ideological issues to some of these treaties and move forward in our own national interest. So uh, I want to second your, uh, uh, your call and, and certainly would love to take a trip down uh, to, to see the, the center. I just want to add uh, on China, 
as part of th devising a strategy, isn't a critical element of that a embracing of and, and reforming it fine, but embracing of multilateralism? You know, when the European Union and the United States join together in an economy, it begins to rival China. When the United States joins uh, with uh, you know Asian and South Asian communities, it begins to challenge China. When China spends unlimited amounts of money in ways to influence its not only economic interests but its foreign policy interests, we're not going to go dollar for dollar or euro for euro, but that's not where our competitive advantage is either. So isn't it critical for us as we think about the strategy that we need to create the strategic relationships with others? in order to be able to more successfully um, uh, ultimately meet the challenge of China and, and by that rebalancing of economic and other interests, be able then to compete more effectively with China and bring it closer to uh, it being part of a new international world order. Uh, I, I, I think that's critical because on our own, despite being a great, a great nation, I'm not quite sure that we can meet that challenge just strictly on our own. Could you have perspectives on that? I would agree with you. And I think it's one of the things that's useful that the administration has what they call the Indo-Pacific strategy, because what that tells to me that to manage China, we and our friends and allies are all going to have to work together. And I think we can use multilateral institutions to put pressure on China. They announced the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. A lot of people thought that was just a strategic play by China. It turns out it's a pretty good bank. China's influence is declining. It's fairly professional. It partners with the other international banks and development banks. I think we should try the same thing with the Belt Road Initiative to new, use the fact that some of the countries that receive Chinese funds are having buyer's remorse and push China to put that in an international multilateral framework too that meets professional standards of transparency, fiscal responsibility, environmental responsibility, benefiting uh, the, uh, the recipient companies. I think we need to use the entire international community to try to manage this problem that we've never seen before, which is the emergence on the world scene of somebody with the weight that China now has and is increasingly going to have. So I agree with you. Senator, all I'd add is I think the United States is great strategic advantage as you look out as far as I can see into the 21st century is our ability to work with and mobilize others. Um, and, you know, China, by comparison, is a relatively lonelier power today for all of its strengths and for all of its inevitable rise. So if you look at trade issues, you know, if we had been able to remain in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, knit together 40% of the global economy, if in future years we had added to that a, a kind of transatlantic analog to that around the, high, the same high-end standards, you know, you could have mobilized two-thirds of the global economy around a set of standards which inevitably shapes China's choices, its incentives and disincentives. <laughs> the same is true as regard to the law of the sea. You know, we're in a much stronger position in the South China Sea against pushing back against the Chinese if we're able to point to those rules, you know, and we're, we're a part of that system as well. So I agree. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to each of the witnesses for being here this morning. Thank you for your testimony. 
Uh, let's let's start where you were just just addressing in the the last set of questions, uh, which is China. And in in my view, China is the greatest geopolitical long-term threat to the United States, both economically and militarily. Um, I want to ask both of you: Do you share that assessment? Number one. Number two. If so, what should we expect from China in the next decade? I uh, worked for President Bush, and each morning we'd come in at about five after seven and tell him of all the terrible things that had happened overnight. And he would always say, well, your job, gentlemen, is to take each problem and challenge and turn it into an opportunity. And I think that's what we need to try to do with China, and I think that's what Senator Rubio was talking about. Um, it is a huge challenge. I don't think we know where China is heading. And that's why I think the point Bill made is trying to condition the environment in which China is emerging to try to influence its behavior. Because the, trades, the, the uh, trends are troubling. If you look at the extent of the increasing control that the party is exercising over the society, if you look at the social credit scheme uh, and using data to really uh, incentivize party-approved behavior from the citizenry, uh, it's, you know, it, it's the kind of tool that Stalin would have loved to have had uh, in his era. Um, we don't know where they're going economically. They clearly have some trouble. I think there is a tension between their political system and their economic system, that you can't have the kind of political control and have the kind of economic reform and opening up China needs if it's going to achieve its ob objectives for its own self. So I think there are all kinds of dilemmas in terms of where China is heading. And the most we can do is to try to condition the environment, shape as, we, as much as we can Chinese choices, but put ourselves in a position that if it comes to an all head-to-head -head competition, we're going to win. Senator, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think we have to be clear-eyed about what Chinese ambitions seem to be. And I think China wants to be a global economic peer of the United States, uh, and it's well on its way to that outcome. And second, I think it wants to recover across the Chinese political elite what it sees to be its accustomed role as the dominant player in Asia. Now, you know, both, both of those ambitions carry with them you know, the seeds of collisions with the United States. I mean, history's full of collisions between rising powers and established powers. I don't think there's anything foreordained about that. And that's why, as both of us have said, I think that has a lot to do with how uh, forward-looking, how nimble we are in trying to shape the conditions in which China rises um, so that we can limit the risks of collisions over time. I think that's possible, but that is the single biggest strategic challenge we're going to face. So in your judgments, what should our objectives be with regard to China and dealing with China in the next decade? And, and, and what tools do we have to accomplish those objectives? And I would ask that you include in your answers uh, some assessment of the Chinese investments in propaganda, uh, whether it is in countries across the globe or here in the United States through organizations like Confucius Institutes uh, that are funded by the PRC and, and designed to spread a, a, a particular message that, 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 that is agreeable uh, to the government of China. I, I think we, uh, we start by preparing to compete with China in those areas where um, 
it is in our national security interests and economic interests to do so and put ourselves in a position we can compete and win in those areas at the same time to try to put a framework on that competition so that it does not become swallow up the entire relationship and push us from competition to confrontation and even conflict. Because there are a lot of it, and, and to, by so doing, open a space for cooperation. Because as I said in my testimony, there are a lot of issues on which it is in China and the United States' interest to cooperate. And we need to find a way to both strategically compete, bound the competition so it doesn't overwhelm the relationship, still have a space to cooperate in those areas where um, it is in our interest to do. Finally, we need to take on the ideological challenge. We've got to show the world again that authoritarian state capitalism is not the route to a stable, prosperous, secure society that our model works. I think we've lost some confidence in that, and we need to reaffirm our commitment to it and then demonstrate it in our own society. I agree. I mean, I think a lot of this has to do with the power of our example in the world. We get a lot further with the power of example than we do with the power of our preaching, I've always found in many years overseas. It has to do with restoring our ability to compete effectively, and we ought not to be defeatist about this. The United States, as you well know, Senator, has enormous strengths to bring to bear. They're not the same singular dominance that we had for 15 or 20 years after the end of the Cold War, but they're still a better hand to play than any of our rivals. But we have a window within which we can play that wisely um, because windows don't stay open forever. And if we don't try to shape that environment, others are going to shape it for us. And I think that's the challenge right now with China and more broadly in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Good line of questioning. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, Kim Jong-un, President Trump, a meeting in Vietnam. And the stakes are very high. Oh, there's a Kim family playbook, going back to his grandfather, where they extract U.S. rewards, they then delay meaningful concessions from their side, and then they exploit ambiguities uh, in any understanding. Uh, and as he arrives, uh, the president has a, a, a bit of a, I call it excessive exuberance going into this meeting, and uh, in my concern is that uh, the president can give away the farm while not, in fact, receiving real concessions from the other side. So my question is, uh, has North Korea taken sufficient denuclearization steps thus far to warrant significant U.S. concessions? And are the promises of future North Korean steps towards denuclearization, of which we don't even have an agreed-upon definition yet, sufficient for significant U.S. concessions at this summit. Um, I think that they do have a playbook. They are very tough to negotiate with. We've had three administrations have agreements with them to denuclearize, and we, none of those administrations were able to keep them into it. Uh, and President Trump has tried an unconventional approach. He initially saber-rattled, and everybody said, oh, my gosh, we're going to war. Turns out he was probably right because he got Kim Jong-un's attention. He's got the Chinese attention. But did he get any concessions? He's got a, a cessation of their missile testing. 
a cessation of their nuclear weapons testing, some dismantlement of facilities. The significance of that is that while the program is ongoing, he's still generating fissile material and ballistic missiles. Right, he's still, it is he, not increasing right, he's its still sophistication. still developing nuclear ballistic missiles. He's still it is producing a fissile material. It is a step on the road on what will be a long yeah. road. Does it justify some response on the U.S. side? Yes. Does it justify significant concessions, your question? Probably not at this point. Those need to be down the road. And I think what the administration is trying to do is have some narrow steps they can take, like a declaration about the end of, of hostilities and maybe some diplomatic opening. Which is very important to the North Koreans. That's a big concession That's right. from and their perspective. And we ought to get some further dismantlement and, and degradation of their nuclear and missile program in return. And if we don't get that? I think we, 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 we need to proceed step by step, and let's see what the president comes up with. Senator, I guess I'd just add a couple of points. I mean, first, as Steve said, any of us who've worked on this issue for the last 25 years start from a point of humility, because it's not like our record is exactly pristine in dealing with the North Korea you know, nuclear and missile threats. Second, I do think it's really careful to, to uh, it's really important that we be careful in not giving away too much too soon, because as Steve said, the North Koreans are practiced masters at dangling things which then turn out to be easily reversible. So it's not an argument, I've never thought this was an argument against engaging at the highest level of leaders. It's not a problem with talking to one another, the problem is talking past one another. And that's why I think, you know, this is a classic challenge of really hard-nosed diplomacy, step by step, to ensure that we don't give away too much, even if it's in terms of a declaration of the end of hostilities, which is something, as you said, the, the North Koreans would really value, because there's a lot at stake in that. If we can get something practical for it in terms of freezing fissile material production and rollback, that's a good thing. But we also have to be careful in light of the long-term strategic competition with China. Because, you know, what North Korea's playbook, I think, is pretty clear. They would like to sow the seeds of uncertainty about the U.S. commitment to our alliance with South Korea or alliance with Japan. And that also happens to suit a long-term Chinese calculus as well. So it's not an argument against a declaration of that sort, but we need to be careful to make sure we get something very tangible in response. Yeah, now the um, UN panel on experts, North Korea is set to publish an assessment of Kim regime's continued illicit behavior. It's got three things in it, engaging in sanctions evasion to sell natural resources and to uh, procure oil at levels above the UN caps. Uh, two, sending North Korean technicians to Syria, possibly to assist with ballistic missiles and chemical weapons programs. And three, selling military equipment and expertise using the Syria connection as a conduit to the Middle East and Africa, including sales to Libya, Sudan, and the Houthis in Yemen. Um, how can the United States provide significant concessions to a North Korean regime that is engaging in those types of activities? Well, it's, it's interesting you should mention it because that was exactly the problem that a lot of Republicans had with the Iran nuclear deal. How can you do a deal on nuclear when Iran is, a, is you know, one of the great state sponsors of, of terror and is destabilizing its neighbors? So this is a dilemma. Uh, and, and I think the, the effort is to, proper approach is to put all the issues on the table even though you might work through them incrementally. Uh, in terms of, of, of getting this process started with North Korea. And I do think one of the things we're not making the most of is the human rights issue. 
which we should be raising for its own self, but also because it embarrasses Kim Jong-un and is actually a source of leverage on Kim Jong-un. So I think we need to be cognizant of all these problems with the regime and have a strategy to begin to, de- to address all of them, but also use all of our, influ- our instruments of influence to try to uh, get the kinds of substantial response that you are calling for. And again, my only point is that if you look at the totality of his conduct, as the panel of experts is going to be reporting back, it's actually less cooperation uh, and intensifying uh, uh, their, uh, the, uh, the conflicts that we United States are on the other side of uh, around the world. So we thank you. Thank you. Thank Mr. you. Chairman. Senator Rubio. And I just want to let it pass both of, because of your expertise and experience that both of you have to, to not ask you briefly about ongoing events with Venezuela, which is uh, part of the world that we haven't really talked a lot about in the last 20 years. And, and at first, I think one of the things we perhaps need to spend more time on is explaining why we should care. And I think one of the issues is what we had discussed in my first round of questions, these autocracy versus democracy debate. Uh, but this is in our own hemisphere, becoming even more pronounced than that. And the other is there's our, it's in our national interest. I mean, if things in Venezuela do not improve, the migratory crisis, another two to three million people are projected to leave, which would potentially collapse social services in Colombia, but also Peru, Ecuador, even Brazil. So it becomes a regional disaster. Uh, the drug flights sponsored by their government, these planes are literally flying out of their airspace, protected by their armed services. They turn right into Central America. They land in Guatemala or Honduras. They're trafficked into the U.S. It's a fuel for the gangs that are terrorizing people and causing migration from that part of the world, not to mention the drugs headed to us. They harbor terrorist groups openly. The ELN, as an example, just killed 20 police cadets about a month ago in, in Colombia, openly harbored in Venezuelan territory, and something that hasn't been covered, the environmental destruction that is occurring in the gold mining, just absolute catastrophic degradation of, of, of once pristine areas. So um, a couple observations, that, because I want your insight, given your years of experience. The, the first is, in this, all this talk about multilateralism, in many ways, the administration's approach to this has been sort of the model of that. The OAS, the Lima Group, virtually all the EU countries in fact, the EU would be there if it wasn't for Italy and I believe Greece that are refusing to come on board, but everybody else is there. Sixty countries sort of aligned with this position and the like. And then my, um, the assessment I have is that this is a regime core made up of cronies uh, who are uh, isolated from reality and a lot of other people. Um, a lot of yes-men around them when you're in that level of power, but they are able to provide incentives to the security forces by the way, are multi-layered down to street gangs that they're using to protect them. But they're still able to provide incentives to the security forces to protect them and to spy on each other. And hence, I think the policy approach has been to target those incentives that they're able to provide by going after the hard currencies through the sale of oil, none of which benefited the Venezuelan people. And, and, and of course, the diplomatic isolation as well. But what strikes me is this has been going now. Now, the crisis has been going on for a long time, but from the moment the interim president swore in to today, it's been four weeks and a couple days. So it hasn't been four years or four months, four weeks. And everybody wants to know why isn't it over yet. First of all, your observation of the general situation. And second, the value of some level of strategic patience. These sanctions and this pressure, both the international isolation and the economic, take time to build in uh, before you begin to see the security forces and elites that are supporting them crack. It didn't happen from one day to the next, and, and, and sometimes they're unpredictable. They happen very quickly, and embedded in that, too, is the notion that we do want to see some of the institutions there, as flawed as they may be, 
survive because if the police officers don't show up the next day, there's no security and then it gets really bad. So just your general observations on both the mo how long it takes to do this, the strategic patience part of it, and, um, and anything else with regards to it. Well, on three quick comments, Senator. First, I absolutely agree with you on what's at stake. You know, through administrations of both parties, we've tended not to pay as consistent a strategic attention to our own hemisphere as we should have. And you're right about the spillover dangers, too, for Colombia, a success story in the last 20 years, but which could really be badly affected by this. Um, second, um, I think in terms of approach, you're right. I think the reliance on multilateralism, on diplomacy, on working with partners in the hemisphere as well as Europe is exactly the right approach. Strategic patience um, is, the, is, I think, the right frame for thinking about this. It takes time for that kind of pressure to take effect. I think there's, you know, as you know better than I do, there's all sorts of challenges which would arise in terms of military intervention given the history of our involvement in the hemisphere and the baggage that comes with that. So I think it's the right approach to build up that kind of pressure. And then the only last comment I'd make is that we do, I hope we're being very careful about, in a sense, preparing for success, because the day after can bring huge challenges, just as you, success, as you suggested in Venezuela. If you end up in a situation where all the institutions are broken and you've got lots of people who have an, an incentive to breed further insecurity, it's a huge challenge as well. So a lot of attention needs to be put into that. Two quick points. Agree with you, need patience. Agree it should be multilateral. The problem is I don't see that we've got enough leverage to get Maduro gone. And I think where the committee can focus and where I hope Elliot Abrams is focusing is what is a strategy that gets us more leverage that will actually crack this regime? Secondly, on Bill's point, one of the things John Allen said, you know, when you, when you plan a major intervention that is going to perhaps crater or change a regime, you need to start with phase four and work backwards. What do you want the situation to be after you've succeeded? And then work backwards in your planning. So the things you do now to achieve that result are not working at cross purposes with where you end up. I don't think we've done that kind of deliberative planning with respect to Venezuela, given how it came up. I think we need to start it now. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for your time here today. And I know I speak on behalf of both myself and the ranking member that we were honored to have the two of you. You were chosen specifically for this as our initial hearing uh, here this year. And uh, uh, we look forward to working with you uh, in the future. And again, uh, you have our, our thanks. Thank you so much. And this, this uh, hearing is adjourned. Thank you.